Hello everybody, this is Benjamin Kitchings with the History Voyager. I'm here with Courtney Tuck Getz, and we're going to have an interesting conversation about, well, why don't you tell the whole world what we're going to talk about? Well, I guess we're going to talk about uh, the topic that I wrote my thesis on, which is titled Femina Furiosa, Female Arena Performers and Their Role in Ancient Roman Spectacle. So female gladiators and arena performers in ancient Rome. That's my, that's my jam. Yeah. So fundamentally, um, history is about nailing down time. So let's talk about what time we're talking about. Well, uh, most of what we're talking about is going to start around like 19 uh, CE um, and it kind of goes all the way till about 200 CE. Okay. But and we do touch a little bit on stuff in the uh, Republican era as well, just because that influences the imperial period. But pretty much the, the first 200 years of the imperial period we're kind of focusing on here. Okay. Okay. So the Roman Empire... During the scope of your paper, the Roman Empire had not uh, yet fallen, uh, as we would say in the vernacular. Yeah, everything, uh, all the evidence that I discuss kind of ends shortly after 200 CE. Okay, so why don't we uh, talk about that? So let's talk about, um, did this happen... I guess we should back all the way up and talk about they, the Romans, right? They, the, their entertainment took place in Colosseums, uh, correct? Um, well, Colosseum is the name for a specific amphitheater, but yeah, we'd want to, uh, in fact, the ancient Romans didn't actually call the Colosseum the Colosseum. They would have used the word amphitheater. Okay. All right. So these, this is taking place in amphitheaters. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. And so basically, are these women, I mean, I believe your paper touches on the fact that this could have been non-gladiatorial in nature, but you overwhelmingly discussed that it probably was gladiatorial in nature as well. Yeah. So um, basically... Uh, Glad females were gladiators, uh, but there are also different types of arena spectacle performance um, that happened in the arena outside of gladiatorial combat. So we do have evidence for women fighting as gladiators, but we also have evidence for women doing other types of arena performance like beast hunting, uh, beast fighting, um, trick riding, all sorts of uh, different types of performance. So gladiators are generally what people think about when they think about uh, ancient Roman spectacle. But I kind of wanted an opportunity to kind of broaden that category a little bit and talk about not just gladiators, but the other type of performers in the arena as well. Okay. Okay. Good. Um, so I guess talk about that. Like, like, yeah, uh, well, I mean, it, we could set the scene for what, you know, uh, your average day, uh, at the amphitheater is going to be like, if you go for a day of games, uh, 
you're going to start out in the morning with, um, there's usually a parade that uh, winds its way through the city to the amphitheater. Uh, that's kind of gets everybody all excited, kind of the same way that like they used to do parades before the circus back in the day. And um, after the parade, then you start the morning with your beast hunts and beast fights. So you've got people hunting wild, wild animals in the arena, uh, fighting them. Uh, you've also got animals fighting each other uh, for entertainment. And all that stuff's kind of in the morning. Then over the noon hour, that's when they're going to stage all the executions and uh, do all the executions of the criminals over the lunch hour. And then in the afternoon is when they move to gladiatorial competition of person-on-person uh, -person, uh, combat. Okay. Now, with the gladiatorial competition, um, and that took all sorts of facets, right? You had um, people, uh, beasts killing people. Right, you had fake naval battles, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, ba battle reenactment was also a really popular form of arena entertainment as well that I think also often gets forgotten. Um, they like to do historical reenactments uh, of famous battles as well, which is kind of cool. All right, so you ha you had that. So. I guess were the women, would they have been sprinkled throughout or would, would, would you have been concentrating um, them in, in certain activities? Well, from what we can tell, it seems as though uh, female arena performers, you know, whatever type they were, um, they're not, they weren't very common. So you'd be really lucky if you could get like one set of female gladiators or like one beast hunter, um, in your games. Uh, so, but, but the important thing to remember too, is that, uh, female gladiators would have always been against another woman. They wouldn't have fought men. Um, there's a big misconception that they fought dwarves. Uh, that's that's incorrect as well. It's based on a Cecil B. DeMille uh, film. Um, right. But uh, so you couldn't have if you're going to have a gladiatorial competition, you couldn't have just one woman. You needed someone to to fight uh, that woman. So there would have to be at least two. Um, but we have uh, examples in the ancient sources of you know, talking about a woman who fights a lion uh, barehanded, which is pretty cool. Yeah, um, that is that is cool. Now, in your paper, you talked a lot about the evidence, which you pointed out comes on, like, carvings and um, reliefs, I think you call it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, inscriptions and kind of sculptural reliefs. We have those. yeah. yeah. Um, I don't remember right off, but did you, were there any, um, textual, uh, like people wrote down these women fought or these women were writers or whatever? Uh, yeah, we've got, uh, we've got some, uh, different sources, uh, some poets like, uh, Statius and Marshall, 
uh, juvenile as well. But we also have some historians like Suetonius Tacitus and Cassius Dio who also uh, reference um, a couple of rare instances um, in that happening. Although in Juvenal's case, he's not talking about a specific real person. He more likes to talk about people who symbolize kind of things that go against social norms. So he writes about a woman, uh, an elite woman wanting to become a gladiator, but we don't really have any evidence to suggest that that's ne- that was necessarily a real person, but it may have been a, you know, a complaint against, again, women who like to do that sort of thing, who like to do manly okay. exploits. But they do reference uh, specific instances, yeah. Uh, Statius okay. or uh, Marshall, I believe, he was president uh, present at the opening of the Colosseum or the Flavian Amphitheater, and um, there were women who fought uh, at that particular set of games to inaugurate the the new amphitheater in Rome. Okay, and what was the uh, I guess for lack of a better word, for a horrible analogy, uh, what was the reception um, of this? Like, first of all, okay, first of all, how would the Romans have thought of, of gladiators the way we think of sports, the way we think of uh, football or baseball or in Soccer, some ways, in some thing. ways, yes. Like they were definitely celebrities. Okay. They were definitely um, uh, they were heartthrobs of their day. That's for sure. They definitely um, okay. uh, were very popular in that way. The difference, I guess, is that these types of ancient performers or athletes uh, belong to a specific type of social class called infames uh which meant that they could they had a lot of legal um disabilities a lot of things that they weren't allowed to do um they couldn't vote they couldn't stand for election um so while they may have been like popular with the masses there was no real way to turn that popularity or celebrity into any kind of actual power for themselves Mm. Yeah, anyone who is any kind of performer uh, was kind of seen as being on the same level as like a prostitute, Uh, a prostitute, Mm. a gladiator, an actor, a dancer. uh, They were all seen as kind of uh, dirty, low, low professions. And this is why, like, this is why one of the reasons I think uh, Nero, this is because he wanted to be an actor or he basically did act and yeah that would have yeah the, and or he also liked chariot racing as well yeah. and um chariot racing was maybe a little bit less taboo but still pretty taboo pretty um, no don't do that people um, people were like oh this is so embarrassing and you know commodus was also very famously into gladiatorial combat he also would perform in the arena you know much to the dismay of all the elites mm. uh 
and in fact, it's said that right before he was assassinated, he was actually planning on dressing in gladiatorial garb for uh, a particularly important public ceremony. And people were just too scandalized by that. And uh, he was assassinated by, I believe, his wrestling coach. Mm. Mm. What would be a parallel today? A parallel of? Well, like, okay, so you you were saying, um, you were saying, for example, they, they were popular with the masses, but they weren't popular with... They couldn't capitalize that popularity into any political power or what have you. And what would, and they were also sort of looked down on by what you might want to think of as polite society. Uh-huh. Right. So, what would be a, um, a parallel of that today? Um, I don't know. Maybe like, uh, like when it, when, Jesse Ventura became uh, a politician. If, you know, instead of just some people saying like, oh, that's weird or that doesn't seem like your average type of person to get into politics. uh, If instead of like that, like maybe dial that up by 10 and then also having like laws put in place saying like wrestlers can't... uh, run for run for office yeah okay because basically if you were um some sort of performer or i it's been described as anyone who had a job that they used their body for the pleasure of others um they were basically on the same same level socially and legally as as slaves so you could be a free person perform as a gladiator and lose all of your legal status. Wow. So they, well, I mean, yeah. And there's all kinds of weird ways that you can look at the Roman culture and you can just sort of think, well, you know, they're, they're vastly different from us. Like, um, I mean, how, okay. Like, our concept of gladiators almost out of hand we would we would dismiss female gladiators right as a society today but the fact that they didn't says something yeah, yeah. well and i think that was part of the real motivation to do this type of research is i really wanted to try and understand you know, A, the motivation behind wanting to incorporate them, but also how, what kind of reception they would have also received, right? Because if it wasn't, if it wasn't received well, it probably wouldn't have lasted as long as it did. Um, Mm. uh, And it wouldn't have become this like novel luxury that people could include in their games um, to make them stand apart from others um Mm. so there must have been an aspect of that but i think approval of the crowd goes along with the social status of the performer if it was an elite woman everyone would have been completely scandalized and been like um you know very upset about that and in some cases we have 
examples of, you know, bad emperors who forced elite women to perform in the arena. And, you know, that was just proof of how terrible they were. Um, but, you know, a, a woman who was a slave, uh, to them, that that woman is, is property. And um, so they uh, they are kind of where they belong in the arena with the other, you know, slaves and, and infames. So I think that's also a big part of it. I think uh, the social status of the performer comes into play there in regards to how they're going to be received by the audience. Mm. Is there any, like, I know there are male gladiators, which are written about uh, in poetry and letters and whatever. Um are there any female gladiators that are that are thought of in the same way or not so much? Um, well, there's very few that get named that we know their names. Um, but there are some instances in which female arena performers are written about in like very glowing terms. Like they're very the 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 person writing about it is very impressed by uh how skilled they are. Uh in whatever they're doing in the arena, whether it's, you know, fighting a lion, there's a, a woman who fights a lion in the arena and the writer uh, compares her to Hercules because he fought the Nemean lion. And he thinks that this woman is just as good as Hercules because she can fight a lion with her bare hands as well, but they never give her name. Um, the thing that's funny, though, in regards to gladiator gladiators being uh, talked about using their names is more often than not, those would have actually been stage names and not real names, not the real names they were born with anyway. That's interesting. And also, isn't there, okay, isn't there, like, precedent for Romans to change their name? later on in life? I mean, or am I misremembering that? Well, I think it depends, again, social status. Um, Like if a person has one name, they're probably an enslaved person. If they have two names, they're probably a freed person, and their second name is uh, the name of their uh, former master. Uh, Elites have three or more names. You probably start out with three and Maybe you accomplish something really awesome in your lifetime uh, and you can receive another one. Scipio uh, Africanus, he received the extra name Africanus after uh, a great military uh, victory in Africa. So that's one way you could uh, acquire more names. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. and and that's often a a, a good clue, though, when we look at at names, discussing gladiators because if that person has one name then they're an enslaved person uh that's that's a a good way of being able to tell that okay okay fair point um so i guess this was first of all how common was do you have any numbers do you have any any data that indicates numbers or or was this basically an edge case? There's, with, with... there's no way to know numbers right now. And in fact, like 
there's so little study on female participation that that makes it really difficult. It also means that we may not have interpreted all of the existing evidence uh, that may lead us to more uh, records of females in the arena, but we just haven't, you know, interpreted that material evidence properly yet because it's only been recent that people have started actually writing and doing research on this subject that previously it's just something that people wouldn't have even conceived of when they looked at um, ancient material evidence of spectacle, you know? So my hope, I guess, is that the more research and uh, scholarly work that's done on this topic means that we may actually be able to find more material evidence or be able to reinterpret existing material evidence that can give us a better idea of numbers. Because right now we just have, you know, little bits and pieces of references here and there from all over the the empire. Okay, okay. And I guess I would ask why that would be, but, I mean, it could be for a whole host of reasons. I mean, various cities were sacked. You had uh, maybe record-keeping wasn't always the best anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let me ask you that. I mean, in general, what is the state of gladiatorial record keeping? Uh, well, it's something that's been very popular in ancient Roman history since the turn of the century, but it's all been, you know, very male focused. Yeah. Um, but it hasn't been a real serious area of ancient Roman um academia probably 25 the last 25 years that have people been really focusing and creating more scholarly and academic work on the topic Mm. what about um as far as record keeping during their day do we know i mean in terms of not female record record keeping about females but you know brutus fought so and so or this is how many gladiators I have, or this is how many lions I have, or things like that. Yeah. So one of the things that I found that was really beneficial in my research was actually funerary inscriptions of the elite men who put on and paid for these uh, entertainments. Um, it was considered something that was like kind of like a, a highlight of their life and career. Uh, so if they put on a particularly awesome set of games that had something unique, like a female performer, they might uh, actually include that on their tombstone in their funerary inscription. Uh, Emperor Augustus even did that in his res gestae, uh, which is just means, you know, things done, things he did. Uh, He spends a lot of time talking about all the games that he put on, uh, how many animals, how many gladiators, uh, that was something that elite men often included in their uh, funerary inscriptions because it was seen as, you know, a highlight of their career, something that they accomplished. Mm-hmm. So, 
but in terms of detail record keeping about how many gladiators somebody would have had or how many lions somebody would have had or how many bears or what have you the state of that record keeping isn't isn't so good yeah i think it's a little it's a little tougher yeah it, and and that's yeah. i guess just one of the realities of ancient history is you know we only have what lasted what like what made it down to us today you know i many ancient historians weep for all the sources that you know were lost over the thousands of years you know the sources they don't have i mean i was talking to somebody the other day that rome was invaded by these people i forget the name of the people right off but and people go up and, you know, people during the time go up and down about these people. They talk left and right about it, blah, blah, blah. And in modern times, we don't really know who those people were. Like, we don't have a modern analog. We don't know who their descendants were, basically, or uh-huh. or what they were. It's just sort of strange. Um, yeah, I mean, the Romans were great record keepers, which is why that's sad you know that you know the amount i i think the amount that has come down is is pretty impressive considering uh but you know um that's why you know a lot of ancient historians still weep over the fire at the library of alexandria right just right symbol of all of those missing sources that you know we wish we had well who knows what you know who knows what was kept there but Mm -hmm. i guess i should ask you to situate female gladiators and female basically arena or amphitheater performers in general uh, in terms of how the Romans and the people they were subjugating or the people that lived in the Roman Empire would have thought of women and to start with I mean what was what was that like yeah I think like definitely we're operating under um, gender binaries for sure. There's, you know, the um, kind of model woman and model man uh, that, you know, each respective person is supposed to want to strive for. And not surprisingly, those uh, kind of cultural norms around gender are created by the elite classes. So, what's considered masculine and feminine is uh, is established by elite people. So a woman should strive to be that perfect uh, matrona, the perfect matron woman who, you know, covers her head in public and is, you know, very soft-spoken and, um, you know, defers to men in all things. Um there were a lot of, yeah, a lot of ideas around gender. And I think, too, even now we think about Roman women as either, you know, this ma- the, the perfect matron or, you know, the Roman prostitute. And that's kind of why I, I enjoy discussing women that don't really fit into either of those categories, because uh, it kind of gives us a more intricate, nuanced vision of people who lived in this time period 
because mm-hmm. that's just kind of the reality of history, right? We're all we're all complicated and nuanced people, and I don't think that was any different in in ancient times. Yeah, and also like I mean, you know, it sounds. I mean, you know, in my master's degree and bachelor's degree, and and my you know study of history since then, right? The thing that you always learned, right? And you always learned, and it went in one in it went in one ear and right out the other, basically, was Rome existed during different cultural times. Like you, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And then you had like 2019 and 2020 and 2021, and you're like, oh, I get that now. Like I get how something can happen. And you, it can totally shift your perspective, you know, to the point uh-huh. where, you know, some, okay, to bring it back to Rome, right? So these Roman people during this period might have thought of gladi- glad- female gladiatorial combat or trick writers or what have you as different from this period even though it's under the same Roman flag or whatever, and they're speaking essentially the same language, blah, blah, but the attitudes shift. Well, I think, I think one of the aspects that's really important here too, is these women weren't portrayed as Roman, like ever. They always would have been portrayed as some like ethnic other, because that kind of allows the performer, the freedom to, to kind of operate outside of the gender norms of, of the Roman culture, right? You know, mm. if she's this mm. wild woman from the Caucasus Mountains, um, she doesn't have to play by those gender rules. Um, yeah. And it's and and the audience in itself can accept that a little bit more easily because, you know, they're these, these wild exotic people from a faraway land they've only ever heard about. Right. Mm. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that performers from that region, but they might be costumed and have a stage name that invokes that for the audience. Yeah. Because whether it's the performers in the arena or the animals that are shipped from, you know, far corners of the empire, they want to put on show how much power they have to acquire these exotic performers and animals for their entertainment. It's reinforcing that idea of, you know, we are a powerful empire. We can subjugate any exotic peoples or animals we wish and bring them here for your entertainment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So let me ask this. Um, Um, would there have been so Rome felt differently in different ways or different places, right? So some of the places might have had a different attitude towards female gladiators than other places, and maybe that's part of the reason. Like maybe those people, be it you know the 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 Germani the Germani or the let me think of another one. Um, the Huns, or let me think of another one. Like the so this tribe might have wanted to stamp that out versus say that tribe. 
You know what I'm well, saying? I guess I'm trying to see why. I guess I'm really trying to understand why this is so not thought about. I, I don't understand. Like, well, why. I mean, I think it's <laughs> you know really similar to the reason why in so many archaeological finds previous to being able to do DNA testing on human remains, b- archaeological burial finds were often gendered based on the grave goods. So the presumption was if a grave and a skeleton was found with all the trappings of a warrior, that's got to be a man. And that was just influenced by, you know, the, the people interpreting the burial because their gender norms and ideas around gender were informing that. Now with DNA testing, we're discovering that a lot of those, you know, people who were warrior burials were able to test their DNA and discovering, oh, actually a lot, some of these were actually female. And, you know, we were just letting our modern ideas around gender um, and imposing what we assumed ancient, their ancient societies concepts of gender would have been. Um, So I think it's almost a similar thing to that is that people just couldn't conceptualize that. And even now people you know, they question a lot. I've, I spoke at a conference once and I had a a faculty, a male faculty member at that university refer to my research in a very condescending way as brave. So I I think even now people are only starting to wrap their heads around the idea that people could operate outside a gender binary in an ancient civilization or an ancient culture. Well, I think I think you're right. But when I was okay, I also think like you don't know. So you've heard the saying, "The last thing on Earth to discover salt is the fish in the salt water," or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. Um. So you know, if you're if you're in this paradigm, right, whatever the paradigm is, and it's the dominant paradigm. And then suddenly the paradigm moves or there's a thing that causes the paradigm to move just all of a sudden. Right. And it's like you have the rug pulled out from under you and it's like, oh, I thought my world was this. I thought this was our values and that was our values. And the other thing was our values. But actually, no, that wasn't true at all. Right. Uh-huh. And like um, I was reading a study the other day from 2015 and it talked about how um, it assumed in 2021 we would look at this in 2021 and this study is assuming a level of scientific knowledge of the general public that the general public does not have you know but Uh in 2015 we didn't really understand that or at least the author of this study didn't actually understand that. But as somebody who's talked to people about COVID and who's heard people tell me, oh, COVID's not real because nobody I know has it. Right? Right. So therefore, it's like, see, you think the salt water is this, but really the salt water is that. 
A lot of people, yeah, because a lot of people base their worldview on anecdotal evidence only and their own personal experience only, right? Right. And you could even say that about the expert, like the expert who wrote that paper saying that the average person is much more scientifically literate than than before. And I don't know, and bringing it back to your topic here, so why do you think that is? Why do you think that, you know, male um, professors in the year of our Lord, 2021, why, why do you think that is, that people call you brave or that you get well-meaning folks like me that I'm, you know, I'd never heard of this before. That's why I wanted to have you on. I honestly never heard of this before. Mm-hmm. And and that's the reason why I mean, when you're doing uh when you're doing research in a time period that, that historians have been working on for you know hundreds of years, it's really hard to find a new angle on something, right? So yeah, part of the reason why I felt writing on this topic was so important is because there's so little out there. Um, and I often kind of thought to myself over the years I was writing it is like now is the perfect time, you know? Now is the time when, you know, Xena Warrior Princess is coming back to television. Wonder Woman is, you know, exploding at the box office. People are starting to be okay with and celebrate uh, martial women, women with amazing, uh, you know, fighting capabilities and things that previously we've seen as being masculine pursuits. Well, the funny thing... Funny, funny is a weird word to say here, but so in the Viking culture, you had that a lot. You had female warriors a lot, and it's like that until recently was basically written out of the popular culture as well. So, I mean, it's just interesting. I don't want to say popular culture, I mean, like the popular imagination, Mm -hmm. like you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and that's why I think it's really interesting that. In the ancient Roman context of women in spectacle, a lot of the times they are either wearing male gendered clothing uh, or they are dressed as Amazon warriors. Because to the ancient Romans, the Amazons were this very exotic tribe of people, women from very far away that, you know, they'd only ever heard about in stories, never seen, but They were an example of, you know, a narrative that they knew of where women were fighting, women were warriors. Um, And that's why often these women, regardless of whether they actually were, you know, Amazons or Scythians from the Caucasus Mountain region, it would be it would be a great idea to uh, dress them that way because that makes sense to a viewer. Ah, yes, the the female warriors uh, of this of you know of Scythia that makes sense to me, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or mythological mm-hmm. figures uh, like Diana, the goddess of the hunt. You know, if a mm-hmm. really good female uh, beast hunter was really skilled with a bow, sometimes they would dress her as the goddess Diana. Um, so that uh, the the viewer can actually see her cast in a role that they know from you know mythology or stories or narratives that they know culturally um, 
you know, as a part of yeah. their popular culture, you know? I mean, it's the same way that, like, the Simpsons make cultural reference and then you, you feel a little bit clever that you've gotten the reference, right? Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the same sort of thing they're doing in the arena there. Mm. Well, I mean, it's like, um, think about, okay, so I'm going to defend the pop culture through time, right? The, the pop trope through time, right? So they don't call it show, show. They call it show business, right? So if you're if you're entertaining people, you want to give them something familiar that they've already seen, even if it's just a costume or a type or what have you, right? Uh-huh. So maybe, you know, you're like with the Scythians and the Caucasus Mountains or... And like that was something they were aware of and they thought it was exotic, but like we think it's so exotic. We don't even think about it. Yeah. Like it's not even, do you see what I'm saying? But it is very successful in that it is both familiar and exotic to the viewer at the same time. Right. Oh, right. Yeah. That, that's what, what makes them so appealing. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so in your fantasy of how this goes, of how this research goes or or whatever, like, wh- how do you think, like, say we discover the Library of uh, Alexandria and they have, here are all the records, here are the collected records for all the gladiatorial combat, <laughs> you know, from this year to that year. And we've accessioned it. And we've, we've, <laughs> it's in a nice finding aid. All that. Um, how do you think? What would you think it would? How How would you like it to play out? Oh that gosh, women, that these yes. women were. I I mean, ideally, it would be amazing to have some sort of record that actually gives the point of view of um, the performer. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're we're stuck mostly when it comes to to you know, written literary sources. Uh, we've got the point of view of elite men and elite men only. Um, mm. So, I mean, that would be really great to have a little bit more. I, I mean, originally that's something I kind of wanted to be able to do in this paper, but it's just not possible right now with the evidence we have. Um, I, I I'd guess... love to be able to be- better understand what their lives would have been like. Okay. But I, I guess I was asking more. Would you, would you have liked this to be a very commonplace thing with these female gladiators, or more of a rare thing? Because in the end of the day, you're still talking about people dying. Like you're yeah. Still talking about. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I don't know if I have much skin in the game in regards to. Yeah. You know their prevalence. Um, yeah. But that's that's probably you know I've I've had to force my brain into that because that's a dangerous mindset to go into when you when you go into research is is you know I would love to find some record that has that gives a female performer a voice and you know there's some way to demonstrate some like amazing like proto feminist. Uh, female historical figure 
but um you know it's just it's it's dangerous to think like that when you're a historian i guess so i just i try not to do that i try to just yeah. base things around you know what i have available to me i guess mm. you know that being said though like i i've spent time in in italy and in rome and spent time in the Colosseum just sitting there trying to imagine the point of view of a performer or an audience member, you know, those are all things that, Oh, it was great. Um, I've been, I've been to the Colosseum three times. Uh, the second time I went, I I actually got access to the hypogeum, which is the under, under the floor part um, so in the Coliseum, there's the place where the, the platform and the sand where the performers and then underneath there was a, a series of like tunnels and lifts. And that's usually where, I don't know, like in the movie Gladiator, they have that tiger that pops out of the floor. Uh, they would right, have had that, yeah. that sort of thing. So, uh, I spent some time down in, in the hypogeum underground, um, where you know either animals or performers probably would have been waiting their turn before it was their time to go perform um trying to imagine that there in these you know dank cells was pretty pretty amazing to try and wrap your head around in that actual physical space uh there's a lot of stray cats around rome so there's a couple that hang out in the hypogeum and you know joke that you know it's the descendants of the the lions and tigers who <laughs> were down there you know millennia yeah. ago yeah, yeah um but then i've also had an opportunity to go up to the very highest levels of seating as well uh which is where the area where um slaves and women were allowed that was the only area where they were allowed to sit was at the very very back in the highest seats possible um so that's something that i think is really amazing part of actually getting to explore these ancient um locations where you're that you're writing about and uh trying to imagine yourself in the place of the people you're writing about is pretty amazing experience. Okay. I think we had said earlier, um, I, I had made, I had asked the, the comparison. Did we see it like a football game or a whatever? So how did they see it? I mean, if I'm Roman, so if I'm a Roman, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I go and make a day of the Coliseum or of the games Coliseum, right? Mm-hmm. First of all, take me through how do the game so obviously like in North America, like you have sports teams, right? And the sports team is owned by a owner, right? Mm-hmm. So with the Coliseum, is it the Coliseum is a fixed thing or the amphitheater? is a fixed situation, right? Yeah. But there's somebody that has to put the game on. There's there's somebody that has to pay for everything. Yes. Right? So the person okay. who pays for everything, they're called the editor. Okay. And that's going to be uh, in the Republican period, um it was, you know, certain politicians once you 
reached the level of a particular office. It was your, um, it was the expectation that you would be putting on uh, the games. Uh, okay. But when Augustus comes to power, he sees how effective the games are for um, ingratiating himself with the people. And he takes that away from all magistrates. And he is now the only one who is allowed to put on games in Rome. Uh, other lower politicians can, but they have to get permission from him. And they're only allowed to spend a certain amount because he doesn't want anyone else to put on games that are going to be bigger than his own. So starting with Augustus, after that, it kind of becomes, uh, at least in Rome, something that's the emperor's duty. Um, outside in the provinces, the, you know, ediles, uh, which is a particular type of magistrate, they're still in charge of putting those on. But in Rome itself, that becomes something that the emperor is in charge of. Okay. So the editors or the emperor is in charge of it. And, okay, so he sends the military out to get, okay, so you send people to get lions and bears and, and giraffes and whatever else, or, or how does that work? Yeah. So, um, and that's another thing is that's demonstrating, you know, the wealth and power of these elite people, whether it be, you know, the, um, magistrate or the emperor, um, they're the only ones who have the money and the power and the connections in the various provinces around the empire to acquire these animals. Uh, we actually have a really awesome uh, record of uh, some letters that Cicero wrote uh, to one of his friends. And he is so stressed about, um, you know, as soon as he wins his magistracy, he wants to be ready for his games. So he is trying to get panthers for his games. And he is so stressed. And there's all these letters back and forth, like, please update me on what's going on with the panthers. Um, because it's, it's really important. Uh, I think later the, the ship with the Panthers on it sunk or something and Cicero ended up kind of getting screwed over, but, um, that's another aspect of it. Uh, these games would cost so much money. And while there was money in the treasury to put on games, uh, like a certain amount for each type of games throughout the year, the magistrate or the editor would be expected to at the very least match that amount with his own personal money. So um, it could be really, really exorbitant amount of money uh, for these politicians to All shell right. out for the games. So now we've, we've gone through that structure. So, so it, if I am a Roman and you are a Roman and say we're in a relationship, like say, well, let's not dive too deep down the road hole. Let's say that we're, we're in some sort of cohabitational relationship. Let's say that we're married. Okay. So would we go to the games together and then split up or would we, how would that work? Well, I think it, it would probably depend on social status. Okay. And also around some of the gendered expectations, like if a, an elite woman might, it might be kind of not seen as particularly feminine to want to go to the games, but um, certain senators or, or politicians uh, 
if they were rich enough and powerful enough, they would have specific seats with their names carved into them. All right. So they had a specific place to sit. But um, after Augustus, Augustus put a law in place basically saying that women couldn't sit anywhere other than at the very, very top. So, yeah, probably wouldn't be able to sit together. Young boys um, had a special place to sit and they had to sit with their their teachers or their tutors. It was the seating within the arena was um, there are a lot of rules around that. So like, okay, so let's say. Okay, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to walk my audience through like a day at the games. Right. So let's say, for example, that. You and I are in some kind of relationship, and at certain period you wouldn't be allowed to go at all, and then other period, like you and I would have split up. Let's say we're not elite, though. Let's say, let's say I'm a, I'm a well. Let's say I'm a mid. I'm I'm an upper middle. I don't know artisan or whatever. People like my pots. Like I'm not wealthy, you know. I'm not like super wealthy, but people like my pots or they like whatever. Right? I'm not hurting. You know uh-huh. what I'm saying? Like I'm not hurt. Um, and let's say, like, you like the game for some reason. You like the games. Maybe your your brother liked the games, and so you like the games because your brother liked the games or whatever. But say you're ecstatic about the games too. So, so you and I would split up, is what you're saying. When we got to the arena, or, or the you'd be a gentleman and come and sit up at the at the very highest uh, levels. Oh, okay. Because, um, yeah, if you if you were a slave, a woman, or if you wore dark clothing, dark clothing was worn by by people the lower classes because it was easier uh, hit, hid stains and, and dirt and stuff like that. Okay. Um, so, so, so yeah, okay. I would say probably in that situation. Um, all right. That would maybe be the thing to do. Yeah. Then again, if you go to say the circus uh, where uh, chariot racing happens, um, you wouldn't necessarily have that. In, ca- in fact, there's uh, a Roman poet who talks about how uh, going to the chariot races is a great place to meet women. Huh. <laughs> That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, now, okay. We keep forgetting, or I keep forgetting, that when we talk about Rome, we're talking about a city, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're also talking about, like, the seat of an empire, but we're also talking about a city, and you can have, like, a city that can have its own mores. It can have its own kind of a culture, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, you know what I'm saying? Like, maybe the yeah. girls in... Maybe the, the, the women in this culture, in this urban culture, thought this was cool, but in that urban culture, over there, in the same time period, but over there, right? Mm-hmm. They thought that was cool. Like the other thing, something else, whatever. So, I mean. Yeah, I mean, and I yeah. think that's part of the reason why the Roman Empire was so successful is once they took over a region and, you know, made it a province, they they didn't make that culture just wholesale take on everything Roman. They always found a way to like 
incorporate yeah. or honor whatever the original culture was. Yeah. Um, and so in that way, I, I suppose that is entirely possible because yeah. the Romans were successful in colonizing in that they they weren't as into, um, uh, I don't know, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? They weren't into hegemony. Um, hegemony. Yeah, in that in that yeah, sense. and they, they they didn't want everyone to just become culturally Roman. Yeah, they well, allowed maybe, people to maybe to they, maybe they, they allowed did. people to keep their original cultures. Yeah, maybe they did, but they didn't think of you know, like they didn't think of the gladiators per se as you have to be into this to be Roman. Like to to be us, you have to be into this, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and I think I it's know. also really important to note that in other regions, like in the provinces within the Roman Empire, mm. amphitheaters for gladiatorial combat and arena spectacle were almost always built in uh, military towns, towns that had a big military outpost. Um, Get out. So that's another thing. It's It's really interesting. You can look at a map of all of the Roman amphitheaters across the Roman empire. And that's something that they've kind of discovered is that was one of the real main impetus for building an amphitheater in, um, in a city or a town was if there was a military outposting there. Um, it's sort of like to entertain the troops or whatever. mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Now. Okay. We're at the games. Let's say I'm a gentleman and we're sitting together. Um, okay. The first thing we see is what? Like the first event we have is typically what? So the pompa or the parade would be kind of going through the the city and would end in the arena. Okay. And so that's where you've kind of got this beautiful, exciting parade. Um, all of the performers and, and animals that you're going to see that day are part of the parade. The gladiators are probably wearing extra special armor that they wouldn't actually fight in that are maybe made of silver or gold, really like outlandish pieces. Um, that would be kind of the, the intro. And then that's when we'd get into uh, the venationes or the animal hunts and the bestiarius would come and, you know, either set a bull and a elephant against each other to see who would win. And then whoever wins, maybe somebody wrestles that animal. Okay. And the morning would be all animal hunting and fighting, whether they're fighting people or, or each other. Okay. okay. It seems as though the Romans were as interested in like who would win in a fight versus a bear or a shark. Apparently the Romans were into that just as much as we are because they also like to pit animals against each other to see who would win. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. Sure. <laughs> I was going to say, but on, in, in this country, I mean, in this culture, we just have endless arguments online about that. We don't actually pit bear and sharks. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're interested in asking the question. We're just not interested in actually watching figuring, that. Figuring it out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So that was the morning. 
Yeah. And, and then, then like, noontime. Okay. That's when you're going to have your criminals coming out to be executed um, mm. over the noon hour. So the criminals, they're known as Noxie. They would be uh, executed in a way that would be really exciting and entertaining. So, you know, either they would be killed by gladiators. Um, the Burning them alive was really popular. Uh, Crematio, that was called. Uh, really popular was called Damnatio ad Bestias, and that was uh, being eaten alive by an animal. I bet. I bet that was something they wanted to see. Yeah, we actually, oh, there's some great mosaics from Tunisia, I believe, that actually show a person, a a criminal uh, tied to a stake that's kind of on a wheeled platform so that they could wheel him out. And uh, he's having his face eaten off by a leopard. It's it's quite the dynamic image. Uh, Yeah. But, and that was something that people were okay with having, you know, depicted on their floors in their living room (laughs) for real for real um all right so that's the noon hour Um, yeah so then you have the the gladiator combat in the afternoon or or yeah yeah that's where you'd get to the the gladiatorial pairings and um very very rarely would you have two gladiators who are fighting in the same style fighting against one another um, there would it would you it would almost always be two gladiators with two different uh, styles of fighting. Because go back to Baron versus Shark, right? You want to see exactly. if the, right. You want to see if the guy with the net and the tri- and the trirene can. Did I say that right? The 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 pitchfork, the Neptune yeah pitchfork. yeah yeah yeah. That's um, the the retiarius and mm-hmm. the retiarius. He he has the the trident and the net. Um, he's one of the only types of gladiators that doesn't wear a helmet. So the idea is that he can see, potentially see better. He's slightly lightly, uh, has less armor than maybe say a Mermillo. So he has the ability to be a little bit more quick, um, and has a better range of vision. Um, whereas maybe the Mermillo, he's got more armor, he's got a helmet, so he can maybe he can take more hits. So they always try to make the pairings different, but interesting that, you know, some have, um, each one has pros and cons to it. Entertainment value. It's always, it's always, you know, you want to, you want to hit your demos. Yeah, and you don't want it to be like a lame fight either, right? You want it to be exciting. You don't want to know the outcome before it starts. That's not exciting. Well, again, go back to bear. How? Who would win, bear versus shark? I don't know. Are they in the sea or are they on the land? Well, that's true. And then, (laughs) uh, yeah, right. Again and again, round and round, we can go. Mm-hmm. Um. All right. Was there a meal break that we know about? Yeah. Well, the lunch, the lunch break, uh, gives you an opportunity. I think that's part of the reason maybe executions are then is it maybe gives people who can't stomach the executions an opportunity, um, 
to to take a break to go eat. But there's also, you know, same as your modern day amphitheater, there's people selling stuff in the stands. There's there's snacks and foods on offer. Uh, in some of the more lavish games, uh, the emperor will furnish snacks, exotic snacks from around the empire and uh, have them available for the audience. Uh, Statius talks about in his Sylvi um, all of these gifts of food and prizes being thrown into the audience. It's like your modern day t-shirt cannon at a, uh, at a game. There would, yeah, be yeah, these, yeah. there would be these little mechanisms that were actually meant to hurl prizes and food and, and treats into the stands for people. Wow. Yeah. They would have these little uh, clay balls that would have some sort of inscription in them. And then you would, you would turn that in for your prize. If you caught the the prize ball that was the catapulted, more, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right. Like that's the like the fifty fifty raffle in the hockey, you know? Or mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I I very much. It's the fact that they have an yeah. apparatus to yeah. swing the prizes in <laughs> to the crowd. It it really wow. is the the equivalent of the <laughs> t shirt cannon. All right. Wow. Let me okay. Let me ask this. Um, how big a town? A town? How big a city is Rome? Uh, let's pick a pick a random year for me that you know about, and just tell me like, how big are we talking? When we say Rome, well, like not the empire itself, but the city. Yeah. Like, you know. Well, it's it's at that time one of the biggest and densely populated cities in the world at that point you know if we're if we're talking around the the time period when the the flavian amphitheater the Colosseum, opens it's one of the largest most densely populated cities in the world at this point certainly outside of china anywho yeah for sure yeah i mean that's what's so just mind-boggling to me is with with this is you're talking about an empire but you're also talking about a city mm-hmm. and it's really fast. Like there's something that you said about, well, the girl, the ladies, the Roman ladies, like, like the chariot races, right? Well, and that's, I mean, here, here we are scholars or here. You all are scholars writing all this down. And really it comes down to the sporting culture of Rome. Like, like, you know, like in this culture today, like you might have, you know the the boys in some city might like football a lot, but the girls all like soccer, right? So here, yeah, is, you know, people. If you want to, you know, in the future, people are going to write down, you know, girls like soccer, and everybody's going to think, oh, well, in this culture, girls like soccer because in one town, girls like soccer. <laughs> Yeah, you know, or you like, can even compare it to the way that like some sports were seen as highbrow and others lowbrow. Exactly. Uh, gladiatorial fights would be, uh, you know, I don't know, football, whereas chariot races would have been like golf. Yeah, I mean. So, like, people <laughs> would perceive one as being more a slightly more highbrow sport than the other. That's based on, you know, made up stuff, yeah. because that's culture. Culture's all just made up. <laughs> 
Yeah, but it, it's one of the culture is weird because it's made up, but it's also very real. Yeah. I mean, as fluid as as fluid as culture is, it's also very real. Mm-hmm. You know, and it changes on a dime. <laughs> Which brings me to I get here's. Was there ever a point where the games, where the gladiatorial games were like, eh, why do we want to go to that? That's what Grandpa did. <laughs> mm, I, think you know, they, like, I think they they slowly kind of died out uh, once we kind of entered the, the, the Christianization of Rome. Uh, you de- like some of the early Christian scholars are very against the games and the brutality of it. Um, that's also a time when you're seeing a lot of economic instability as well. And, um, the amount of money that goes into the games is, uh, pretty high and, you know, maybe just not seen as a responsible expenditure anymore. Um, chariot racing lasts longer than, uh, gladiatorial combat, but, um, it's How hard long? to to pinpoint, you know, a reason behind it. I, I think it's 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 a little bit of both, maybe. Yeah. How long did chariot racing last? Chariot did racing you, was really I mean, popular not... into the Byzantine era. Um, wow. yeah. yeah, like if you go to Istanbul, uh, some of the um, uh, circuses uh, where they did horse racing, or yeah, so you can still see where those are. Um, but yeah, uh, chariot racing would also be very similar to modern sports in the what way a, that there's fans for teams yeah. and colors. Wow. What about um, gladiators? How long did how long did the gladiatorial games last? Um. Well, I mean, they started pretty early it, um, in ancient in the ancient Roman context. Um, pretty early on because originally it was uh, done in a funerary context. It would be done graveside uh, at a important elite man's funeral. Uh, two slaves would be chosen to fight uh, and their blood that they shed in the fight was seen as an offering um, to the dead. Um, it was also associated with a lot of religious festivals so uh, festivals of harvest, um, that kind of thing, um, they would have been very s- similar to what we think of with, you know, in an amphitheater with animals. The animals probably would have been local animals, uh, nothing too exotic. Um, and uh, eventually that kind of religious and funerary purpose behind them kind of slowly starts to die out as people in power start to see how useful it is as a way to gain popularity and gain power and get elected. Um, So that whole time period, um, you know, we're talking really early into the Republican period and throughout until, you know, we get to um, the imperial period, you know, in the early early Republican, uh, that's kind of where it's beginning, and then slowly becomes yeah. uh, something that's religious for public 
and then it becomes something that, you know, politicians sponsor. Um, but yeah, we're talking hundreds of years here. Um, chariot racing started earlier and, and, and lasted longer, but, um, definitely we've got centuries and centuries of, um, gladiatorial combat or arena spectacle within the Roman context for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's just so interesting to think about in terms of like, I don't know, like, so would they have, it's so interesting to think, well, this on one level was an entertainment, but on another level, this is people dying. And on a third level, it's just, it's so brutal. It's like, hmm. Yeah. Know. Yeah. And I think like part of it is that originally it's in a, uh, a religious context. So seeing something, seeing animals slaughtered would have been nothing. You know, that's par for the course in ancient yeah. Roman religion, sacrificing animals. Um, I think that's also part of the reason why the performers in the arena are seen at the lowest social level possible. They're they're on par with slaves. They're basic. They even and some of them are enslaved people. They are the lowest of the low. They're they're owned by somebody. They're property. So that in itself is, I think, part of it as well that allows people to be okay with seeing that kind of brutality. Yeah. Um, and, and, and with the noontime executions, they're criminals, they're bad people who need to be punished and they deserve mm. what they get is the kind of attitude around that, I think as well. Mm. Mm. Um, but I think it's also important always to remember in the context of gladiatorial combat is Hollywood likes to make it seem like every match ended in death and every fight was to the death that wasn't actually the case uh, it could be to mm. the death it was usually a tap out type situation you'd raise a finger to to tap out the match would stop uh the referee would stop the, there was actually a referee in the in the arena and then the editor of the games would be allowed to decide whether that person who tapped out uh, should get reprieve and be able to live or to die. But gladiators are very expensive to own and purchase. And so people wouldn't have taken that decision to have them killed lightly. Because hmm. hmm. that editor would then have to pay the person who owned that gladiator what they were worth. So, yeah, okay. I think we... We didn't talk about the gladiator schools, did we? I don't think so, no. No. Uh, do you want to do that? I'm sorry. Whoops. Sure, yeah. Whoops. So, uh, gladiator schools. Yeah, so there's uh, the gladiator schools, often known as a Ludus, and it's owned by a Lanista. And then there's uh, teachers that teach there and that's usually uh, a doctore uh doctore actually just means teacher in latin mm -hmm. a doctor would have been a medicus that's a different thing so very confusing with the terminology but mm -hmm. so a lanista um is the person who purchases houses feeds um all of the the gladiators that are under their name 
Mm-hmm. And um, interestingly enough, the Lanista would also be considered somebody of a lower social class as well. A Lanista also would not be able to, say, uh, run for political office. Their um, association with the gladiators, making their living off the gladiators, was tainting for them enough to not be able to uh, do something like that or raise in the social ranks at all. That is so interesting. When you think about it, I mean, on the one hand, these people are the lowest of the low, and on the other hand, they're revered. I mean, it's just so interesting. They're also doing their work to benefit those of the highest echelons as well. The, the, the super elite are consolidating their power on the backs of the lowest of the low as well. Right. The performers go out, they, they put on an amazing show and the editors hearing the cheers and internalizing those as being for himself. The the performer's yeah. successor are his own. That is just so interesting to think about. I mean, so that right there. I mean, you you think about you know today. That's where the that's where the parallel breaks down, right? Like, who wouldn't you know like. Like, what girl today wouldn't want to date an NHL hockey player or a Major League Baseball player or whatever, right? I mean, seriously. That's where the parallel breaks down. That's what I can't – one of the things I can't really wrap my head around is that. Yeah. In in previous papers that I've worked on in this, and I might have even addressed it in my thesis, is that it's entirely possible that – that was a conscious decision made by the elite to make it so that these people couldn't usurp their power through their celebrity. It's entirely possible that that's part of the reason why laws about that kind of came into play because that could have potentially, you know, upset the whole power paradigm in their culture. Right. And wasn't, I mean, Spartacus, that was real. Yeah, Spartacus was real, and he was a he was a Christian slave that led a slave revolt from gladiators. They were gladiators, correct? Mm-hmm. They, yeah. they were. Yeah, and and of course, you know, I've seen the movie, but I also read about it, like the historical event. Mm-hmm. And boy, I bet that was scary for the elites. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yes, they hate slave revolts. They really do. There's a few in the um, ancient yeah. Roman uh, historical record that, um, yeah. Part of you kind of has a bit of Schadenfreude reading those, being like, "Yeah, that's right. You get what you deserve." <laughs> yeah. Take <All> right. that. <laughs> but then you know, yeah. I mean. It's funny too, isn't it? The maybe because we're maybe we're different, you and me, because we live in this on this island continent separated from Europe, yet we're speaking a European language. 
right? So it's totally possible. Like in my in my family tree, I have like elites, but I also have like peasants, right? Where mm-hmm. like in Europe, you probably don't have that as much. Or maybe you do, but not as much as they do in America or in Canada. You know, just saying. It's hard. Yeah. To, you know, I don't know. That old money. Yeah. Generational wealth. <laughs> well, but you know, yeah. Yeah. Right and proper. Right and proper old money. Like, you know. I mean, hmm. I don't know, like, um, so I guess like we covered, did they think it was an athletic event or did they think it was a religious event? And it was basically both. Yeah. What you're saying. Yeah. Which is and also strange. political theater to an extent as well. And political theater. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. And then the Christianity came in and. Thou shalt not kill. <laughs> yeah, so. you got people like Tertullian, you know, telling stories about, um, you know, what going to see these games yeah. does to a person by being exposed to that kind of violence. And it's the first time you start to get kind of people moralizing and questioning mm-hmm. the morality of, of games like that. Wow. Now... Was there any, did that bubble up? Did that bubble up from the consciousness or was it, or do we even know? Like, were there people, you know, did he give voice to a thought that people were like, hey, maybe we shouldn't derive enjoyment from this? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, know? it's it's hard to tell. And two, because the Christianization of the empire happened quite slowly. It wasn't you know after the edict of milan every everyone became christian either you know it is this kind of change over gradual change over time um Mm. but i it you know it's partially probably a change in sensibilities and it's also probably partial just people don't have the money to you know drop eighty thousand sister she's on a Day at the games. You mean as far as the 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 elites? The, the yeah, the editors to put on yeah. the games. Why and, didn't they have that kind of money anymore? Like what what happened? Um. Well, things. Uh. Things. The third century. Uh. Is famously known for the the third century crisis when uh, the economy kind of goes in the toilet. <laughs> um. So. Uh. That's you know potentially part of it as well um i believe silver gets devalued in, to a great extent at that time as well mm. um so yeah they have a, a a pretty serious uh economic collapse at that time so mm. um that's partially part of the reason we think that um in 200 ce uh, septimius severus outlaws uh female uh female on female combat in the arena. Um, oh. You know, uh, Septimius Severus put in that order, but, you know, he also uh, inherited a huge economic deficit from the people who came before him. 
So wait. Okay. I'm not following. So because there was an economic disaster, somebody had to outlaw female on female combat. Well, I think it's it, it's it's not one equals the other. I think it's slowly gets picked away at. So okay. it's um, women performers were often seen as symbols of luxury and you know sumptuousness that you know uh. because they cost a lot more than your average uh, maybe male performer, and because they're seen as this you know. Uh, luxury item um, it maybe is in their interest to uh, outlaw those types of performers that cost so much more in the in the historical record they say the reason behind it is because they don't want women to be humiliated and that but you know that's the reason they give but may not be the whole story ah Okay. Okay. Um, now, I think I know the In fact, I know I know the answer to this, but we need to say it out loud. Uh, the gladiators weren't paid, were they? No. Okay. Yeah. Um, so how did they live? I mean, how, how would they have lived? Well, I mean, I guess some gladiators could have gotten money um they could have earned a little bit of extra but they would have had to reach the like really the highest levels of uh celebrity or or of their profession to kind of to do that most of the people most of the gladiators are enslaved people so um they so they're okay so they have a place to live they have someone who feeds them they have potential the ability to win their freedom, earn their freedom, or become free after their uh, master dies. Um, but that's that's kind of it, yeah. I think. So it goes back to their origin that they were slaves, which I think that the gladiator schools, it wasn't like you could, I mean, obviously maybe you could turn up at the gladiator school and, and be a gladiator, but a lot of them were... Uh, prisoners of war prisoners of war or what have you okay yeah we do have examples of volunteer gladiators um who you know could sell themselves to uh a ludus um it's Mm. uh it's i think a little bit more rare but we do have evidence for people volunteering to become uh gladiators as well and selling themselves to ludus a ludus all right, all right. Um, hmm. I mean, okay. So, wow. But I think that it, it's it's using gladiators that are prisoners of war from places that Rome has conquered is at the very heart of the gladi- gladiatorial fighting styles. Each fighting style is modeled after a type of warrior who Rome has subjugated. So they take the armor and weaponry from the people that they have conquered, and that becomes a a category 
of uh, Gladiator. And you can learn to fight in that style with that particular type of armature. Mm. Yeah. So, like, it's uh, we would call that uh, appropriation today, basically. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The um, it's it's also just part of that uh, kind of idea that they're presenting along with uh, the exotic animals is, you know, right. we, we own these lands, including, you know, the natural parts of the land, the animals, we own the people, you know, it's, wow. it's a great way to advertise uh, how yeah. powerful the empire really is. And, you know, if you consider yourself a Roman, uh, you might feel pretty chuffed about that, that, um, you know, great way to feel patriotic, I suppose, I guess, you know, like, you know, that's right. We yeah. go into those provinces and we subjugate those people, you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 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 Jingoistic or whatever. Sure. Yeah. That's very, yeah. Wow. Huh. No. Um, so I've been itching to ask you this for like the last hour. Um, I'm, I might edit this out. I don't know. But what would you say? First, would you say there's a comparison to gladiator combat? Or is there like a, is there a thing that you think that we do that future civilizations are going to look at and say, why did they, that's brutal. Why did they do that? Blah, blah. You know, on that same level. Mm -hmm. Right. What? Well, you know, I, when I was teeing a course specifically on, uh, ancient sport and spectacle, I got a lot of term papers, uh, about MMA, uh, yeah. which required me to learn a bit about MMA. <laughs> but um, a lot of my students very successfully argued that MMA is basically just a modern version of the ancient Greek Pankration uh, wrestling. And it really is. It It's not that different. Similar rules. Yeah. Um, and it is considered you know fairly brutal i've watched some <laughs> pretty brutal matches um yeah. you know but we look at some of our more brutal sports like mma or, or boxing and those are all sports that have come down to us from the ancients <laughs> so i remember i remember i i think i'm older than you i'm not sure but I remember, I don't want to throw the wrong hockey player under the bus, but I remember there was a hockey player that speared another hockey player in a game. And this had happened before, and it would have happened again. It was in the rule book, every, you know, whatever, blah, 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 right? But this one time, this happened, and it was so bad that they decided never to do that again. Like, never again shall this happen. You know, like, he cut the guy, and it was a bad cut. You know? Uh -huh. Bleeding all over the place. I don't want to throw the wrong hockey player under the bus, but, you know. Yeah. 
yeah hockey is especially <laughs> brutal as well yeah um got some you know i come from the the land of hockey in canada you know it's very yes, popular so i i um a lot of friends and family who play hockey and uh my one cousin he was uh he was a big inf- he was the enforcer for his team and he mm-hmm. uh he got pretty rough mm-hmm. now was that at a minor at a like a amateur level minor level what um yeah, that would have been minor level. Wow. I have a couple of friends who played in the WHL, but that's about yeah. that's about it. The WHL is uh, the Western Hockey League, which is is that major junior? Oh gosh, maybe. Um, yeah. It's like it's so. it's like the one below NHL for us. I don't know. Well, the, okay, because you have the AHL, which is the minor leagues of the NHL, and then you have, like, the W, and you have the W, and the Q, and the O, and I think I'm skipping one. Yeah. I think I always yeah. just think of the WHL because Saskatoon, the city where I live, yeah, yeah, has yeah. the WHL team. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I I love I, I know I'm from the South, but I really love hockey a lot. Um. Anyway, but you know, anything? and and I part of that I feel like maybe I don't think of hockey as being as brutal because I was raised because, watching it live. Because you were brought up in it, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so it, it, a le- it doesn't often seem as <laughs> brutal to there, me. But that's maybe there, just exposure. There's a lesson right there, like the gladiator people, the fans, if you will, of the gladiator sport, if you will probably grew up with it so they were probably eh, whatever yeah eh. <laughs> yeah they were probably you know? you know just yeah stoked on you know so-and-so had a had Tradition. a good move and you know countered yeah. so-and-so and yeah. yeah and that's what happens when you <laughs> so on and so forth yeah but yeah yeah I don't know. I think that's one of the cool things about history, though, is trying to understand the Mm. mindset of people who lived in a completely different time and place uh, and paradigm as you. Um, So interesting. Um, I think it was the last time I was in Rome in 2016, I was teeing a, a study abroad course at my university, and I discovered a gladiatorial school just outside of Rome down the Via Appia and you could sign up and take uh, like a a day of gladiator training. So I signed up and I signed up a a few of my students and we went and we did it for the day and it was amazing. I specifically requested, there's one female instructor there uh, who does reenactment and she was our coach for the day and I just, loved it just getting to go through the motions and try physically doing something from a completely different time period was so cool Um, i mean yeah our uh our teacher she she's a professional gladiatorial reenactor and her her, uh her gladiatorial name is flama the flame (laughs) and (laughs) I discovered after that that 
female gladiatorial reenacting has actually become really popular as of late. It's huge in Europe. Um, Upon uh, finishing my thesis, I had so many requests from gladiatorial reenactors and specifically female gladiatorial reenactors contacting me wanting to read it um, to help them, you know, do their jobs as reenactors better. Um, It's really interesting. I, I would love an opportunity to be able to go around the world, meet all of these women who do this and try and unpack what it is about specifically gladiatorial reenactment as a woman that's so appealing because there's people women all around the world doing it i mean yeah i mean that's one why do you think that is i mean because i have thoughts but why do you think that is Uh, well i mean if there was a if there was a community of people who did that where i lived I would definitely do it. Um, it's mm. it's great exercise, um, but it's also really empowering to swing a sword. Mm. I think I find it to be anyway. Um, it uh, it's fun. Um, mm. It uh, it's one of those sports that you know you have to constantly be moving. You constantly have to keep your eyes open. Uh, so it is really fun, but it's also very empowering and makes you feel really strong while you do it, which for me would mm. probably be uh, what's so appealing about it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would think you're right, but I also think it's like the whole... I mean, just think about what these people did, you know, like, um, that would just be really empowering for people, I suppose. And I think, uh, especially in Europe, it's, it's very popular there. And I think to an extent, there's also, uh, an aspect of cultural heritage there as well. Um, you know, a oh, lot of, sure. uh, I met, uh, you know, some Italian women who do it and for them it, you know, they see it as a part of their cultural heritage. So that totally <laughs> makes sense to me. Well, right. And I mean, it's interesting to me to think, you know, like you think, you know, whatever, like you think, oh, well, the Romans were here, but how did your ancestors feel about that? You know, like, you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Like. Like, you're happy, but <laughs> how did your ancestors feel? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's just... Yeah. I don't know. There, I feel like to the modern person, there's something about swinging a sword that's very satisfying. Right. Um, I've yeah. done workshops for kids uh, oh. at one of the history summer camps I used to work at my old museum, uh, the Museum of Antiquities. Uh, I did a gladi- I would do a gladiator training with them. And because uh, gladiators train, you know, similar to a dancer with mm-hmm. numbered moves. So I would teach them. We would have five moves. I would call out the numbers. We would do them. Um, they all had foam swords. 
Um, and then at the end of training, I would, you know, officially make them official gladiators and they would get to choose their gladiator name. And I would get let them hold my gladius up in the air and they would get to scream at the top of their lungs their their gladiator name they chose for themselves. And it was it was very empowering for them and also hilarious because the kids came up with names like Cheese Puff, you know, to from everything from Cheese Puff to the Destroyer, you know, it was great. That is hilarious. I mean, I guess how do you come up with Cheese Puff as a whatever? Yeah. Sure. I mean, okay. Yeah, kids if are fun like that. Yeah. Yeah. No. Right. Um, I don't know. It's just, hmm. Well, thank you so much. And do you have anything you want to tell the internet before we sign off? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I would encourage anyone who thinks that this topic is interesting to, you know, go out there, search, search some more. There's plenty of misinformation out there, but you know, the, if you, if you dig real hard, you find some really great stuff um, mm. on this topic. And I'm yeah. just, I'm just happy to be able to be one of those people who uh, has created a source out there for people to learn more. Alrighty, uh, Courtney, um, thank you very much. Just if, uh, hang on a second, I'm going to unhook the recording. <laughs>